Hello, and welcome to The Gaily Planet, a podcast where two queer nerds talk about media we love. I am Lark Malachi Gray. And I am Jesse Blount, and today we are talking about the first half of the book, The Subtle Knife. We sure are. We're back to the His Dark Materials series after a fun side quest for summer camp. Uh, We're back to... We're back to... Dark academia question mark. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Let's see. I do have a couple things to say before we get started. Uh, One, we really do. 40 wasn't an arbitrary number for our goal of new sticker club subscribers. It's our real goal and we haven't hit it yet. So we're continuing the promo through the month of September. Um, Join this month. And you get two bonus stickers from the back catalog in addition to September's sticker. So you should do it. It's super fun. You can join either through our shop or on Patreon. It's cheaper on Patreon. And I don't know. It's really great. Yeah. And then if you join through Patreon, you get stickers and our Patreon content, which is so it's like you're getting all of the things. And, you know, the there's some gift-giving holidays coming up. You could always buy someone a subscription or gift yourself a subscription. Like, you, you could do so many things. You could get one for yourself and just share some of the stickers. The possibilities are really there. It's true. It's true. Um, other things that you can do that support the art that we make is get yourself a ticket to our Rocky Horror live show on October 19th. The link is in the show notes and it's going to be super fun. We're really excited to talk about Rocky Horror with all of you or at all of you. Uh, (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's going to be great. Um, And then finally, last thing before we get into the episode... Thank you so much to Lolly for your generous donation and also really sweet note. Um, both of those just made our hearts very happy and we really appreciate it. Thank you. So yeah, I think that's it. Now I'm going to tell you what happens in the first half of this book. All right. We read chapters one through seven for this recording, which according to my Kindle is like, 48% of the book. So well done, Jesse, and choosing our cutoff point. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. In the first half of The Subtle Knife, we are introduced to Will, the new co protagonist no one asked for, but who we reluctantly grow to like. <laughs> <laughs> Will is from our world, and he and his mentally ill mother are being harassed by some dudes who are after information about Will's missing dad. After accidentally killing one of the guys, he finds a window to a new world where he meets our actual protagonist, Lyra. They team up, with Will agreeing to help Lyra navigate his Oxford to find a scholar who can help Lyra learn about dust, and Lyra agreeing to help Will find his dad. But then some creeper steals the alethiometer, meaning Lyra can't hold up her side of the bargain until they get it back. We end this section with Will and Lyra being given a mission by the creepy guy. Steal a magic knife for him, and he will return the alethiometer. 
We also spend some time with Lee Scoresby and the witches, namely Serafina Pecola and Ruta Scotti, as they try to figure out what the fuck is going on, but also find Lyra, but also find Asriel, but also find this dude Stanislaus Grumman slash Joppery. And they're pretty successful, considering that we leave this section with Lee headed to Grumman's current location, Ruta Scotti hanging out with some literal angels who are headed to Asriel's <laughs> new Let's Kill God fortress, and Serafina in the same world as Lyra. To be continued. Dun-dun-dun. <laughs> And today's headline, local cat involved in murder would do it again. Hell yeah. Get it, Moxie. Ah, Moxie. All right. So before uh, we get into this book, we need to issue an apology to the Her Dark Materials podcast. So the reason that I have not listened to a Harry Potter podcast or a Buffy podcast since we started our podcasts is because I hate the idea of accidentally stealing someone else's jokes without knowing it, which we did. Both of us stole jokes from Her Dark Materials and our discussions of the first book. So I just want to say sorry and that it was an accident. I just re-listened to their whole catalog so that I'll know that I'm not stealing any. And if you steal any, I'll be able to let you know also. So the ones that we stole, mine was the thing about the demons and the like the severed demons in the cages being reminiscent of the souls in Ursula's cave that mm-hmm. came straight out of Faye's brain. Apologies. <laughs> Whoops. Um, <laughs> and yours was about the description at the beginning of the book of Azriel just being like Phil trying to tell us that he's a top. So yes, we're sorry and we will try not to do it again, but it was not intentional. Uh, and if you want to like chapter by chapter analysis of the, his Dark Material series, go listen to their pod. They're great. They are great. All right. Yes. All right. So now we're going to turn to the front page where we talk about everything that doesn't go anywhere else. You start. <laughs> uh, related to my headline, my first thing literally is that Moxie and that other cat are the MVP of this book. <laughs> Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's like one of my first notes, too. It's just like about Will being a cat person. And I really like the description of him befriending Lyra as if she was a strange cat that he was like trying to ingratiate himself with. Which is like such a good description of sort of Lyra's half feral, half like, how dare you? I'm an aristocrat vibe totally well like will has got a really i think good read on life <laughs> yeah. <sighs> yeah yeah totally she is like right half i don't know how to wash my own hair and half like or like half i don't need a bath i guess the aristocrat piece actually is the not knowing how to wash her own hair she's like someone else does that <laughs> like why would i why would i bathe myself yeah oh yeah lyra all right so and speaking of our now duo of this book i love that they literally meet fist first like they're fighting each other (laughs) the first like two minutes of their acquaintance of their like meeting each other yeah i also really love that we meet them or like they meet with lyra doing to will exactly what he did to like kill that dude by accident because it just establishes them so profoundly as 
equals as like they think the same, you know, they're both sort of the same quick thinking, like I know how to deal with this thing. I'm not the kind of person who hides, like I take action. It's like, yeah, yeah. no, these these kids are like, they are each other's match, right? And yeah. I think that's great. Yeah, and I feel like what's also really lovely is that like physically they're pretty much evenly matched. They're both sporting bruises from each other, you know? Um, so we get two moments with Lyra in like our first little bit with her in this book that I just have strong, like, yeah, same vibes about versus <laughs> Will being like, she could take orders if she could see the sense in them. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> is, is there is there a more neurospicy observation ever where it's like, what is the reason for what you're telling me? That makes sense to me. Great. Right, exactly. Yeah, that and then the part where he's like, go wash the dishes. And she's like, wash the dishes. There are millions of clean ones. And I was like, yeah. No. I would literally just put those out back. Like, why would you wash the dishes? I was also literally like, no, I too would be like, fuck these dishes. Fuck paying. Will, look look around you. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> like, this is this is the hill you're going to die on, but, you know, he has a strong uh, moral compass, and I respect that. Yeah, it's, I mean, right. I feel like Lyra also has a very strong moral compass. I think there's just, like, what am I trying to say? I feel like there's a word that I'm looking for, and I just can't find it. Try talk, Try talking it out. The sort of like polite things that Will is like, these are important things, right? Like he's been taught how to like live in a society in a way that Lyra hasn't necessarily. And so like his moral compass is like, no, it's like proper. It's it's good and important to like clean up after yourself and like pay even if you think that whoever owns this cafe is probably never coming back and whatever. Whereas Lyra's is this very like deeply felt like what is right and what is wrong. And I don't know necessarily that Will's right and wrong moral compass is as finely honed as Lyra's is. And absolutely hers, her like how to live in a society moral compass is like, it's not honed at all. It is a, it's a blunt rock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. W- Will, Will is not as feral as Lyra is. Right. <laughs> he is, uh, I don't want to say domesticated cat, but like, I think it's like, he's like thoughtful in a way that it would never occur to Lyra to like even care about. Yeah. And I mean, and it makes sense because he, he's had to be to like stay under the radar, right? Yeah. He has to be this very well mannered kid, you know? Yeah. He has to be sort of above above reproach. So like, it's like, there's no reason for anyone to look, take a second look at whatever the fuck he's doing. Right, exactly. Anyway, that got deep. Um, We get a dude, like a magisterium dude, who has a muskrat demon that's just like, destroying a pencil. (laughs) And I never fully thought about all the different ways that your mental health could be shown in a demon if your demon could like interact with the world in a way like 
that until that moment where I was like, oh, fuck. If I had a demon that could, like, chew or shred, imagine how much worse my surroundings would be. If, it's, if it was both of us just, like, constantly picking at things. <laughs> I wouldn't be invited to anyone's house ever. Yeah, same. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, <laughs> just you are correct. <laughs> oh, yeah. And like, neither of us have, I don't know, like reptile, like not showing any of your emotion kind of demons either. <laughs> so no, my demon is a raccoon. It has like four hands. Do <laughs> like, so much nonsense. Yeah go through so much furniture to be perfectly honest Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like oh my daemon just ripped open an armchair and like burrowed into it and i'm like honestly mood (laughs) i would just be like "Eh." (sighs) okay so the whole thing with seraphina pecola sneaking onto the like magisterium boat to like a save that one witch and to discover how much she hates miss Coulter is like really one of my favorite things she's just like oh i'm literally gonna murder you one day it's gonna happen yeah i don't know how long it's gonna take but it's gonna happen and i'm like i respect that (laughs) for real oh my god i love it it's so just the attitude that the witches in general have towards like killing bad people i just find great um speaking of people with moral compasses you know Lee, you know, has a lot of feelings about killing people. The witches seemingly no feelings about killing people. They're just like, that's a bad person. I'm going to kill him. And like, generally, I don't think that's great. But like, the witches we see, save for one that we'll maybe talk about later, seem to have like pretty good choices when it comes to who they should shoot in the throat with an arrow. Yeah. I feel like the fact that they're like, are mostly, I guess I won't say mostly considering how deep the witches get into this whole deal are like sort of on the edge of human society. So it's probably not very many opportunities to like get in depth about, wow, how many terrible people are there in the human world? So many. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, I have to send you a text message really quick. So we get a dude in a bar described as having a, uh, a lemming demon that's, sticking out of his pocket looking solemn and so i did my best to find a solemn looking lemming (laughs) oh my god i love it (laughs) listeners it looks like a hamster with no ears and it has a black snout and like eye makeup uh it's pretty cute and solemn it'll be in the show notes (laughs) yeah it's making a very like serious little thinking face (laughs) (laughs) i love it yeah uh, love that our favorite dad, Lee Scoresby, is the first, like, cis dude to hang out in the Witches' Council. So, non-toxic masculinity for the win. Yeah. He's so good. He's, I know. He, you know, I kind of feel like his uh, invite might have been, you know, retracted had he not responded with appropriate reverence. But he totally does. He's like, oh my god, me? Okay, thanks. I'm just some dude from Texas with a balloon. And it's like, oh, Lee. I love him. I know. Best dad. Yeah. 
Actually, okay, so I only have one more thing here, which is, you know, Ruta Scotty, who (laughs) I'm sure we'll talk about more. She, like, heads off to go with these angels to go find Azrael. And I just think that Philip Pullman does an incredible job with creating the scenario with her and the angels, because we get all of this stuff about, like, the witches and, like, how how long their lives are compared to like, you know, us. And, you know, so Rita lives in this experience of like, she's a long life, you know, like she's so much older than like any non-witch. Right. Yeah. And so it says Ruta Scotty was 416 years old with all the pride and knowledge of an adult witch queen. And something about the specificity of 416 sounds like it being like, I'm five and a half years old, which is exactly how (laughs) the angels hear that she is 416. They're like, okay, baby. They just like tolerate her. She's like, you're going to lead me. And they're like, okay. (laughs) It is. That whole interaction is deeply funny. Yeah. Along with this, I love that we get a mention from omnipotent omnipotent Philip Pullman that Ruta Scotty only sees him as human because that's what her brain can sense. And that if not, they would be kind of biblically accurate angels of a not human winged form. And I'm like, yeah. love it. Yeah. Who doesn't love biblically accurate angels that like aren't human shape and just like some weird monstrosity. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, I only have like two more things. One is that I love the transition. At the end of chapter five, we have Will reading all of the letters from his dad, which he's never done before and like has a lot of feelings. And then the beginning of chapter six, as like part of, I guess, the foreshadowing is Lee Scoresby at a bar and people are telling him about Stan Laus Grumman, a.k.a. Will Perry. I mean, sorry, mm-hmm. a.k.a. John Perry. Right. And I'm just like, what a great little... I see what you did there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then my last thing is like, we've seen Lyra's sort of religious fascism meets steampunk world. And I'm like, yeah, it would be so easy from a dude from the eighties. If you, from our world, if you end up in Lyra's world to just fabricate an entire identity, like I'm sure laughingly, shockingly easy. <laughs> Seems like he just showed up in Berlin and was just like, I'm a student now. And everyone's like, cool. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, John Perry didn't have to do shit in order to just be like a citizen. <laughs> a citizen. Yeah, definitely. That was actually something that I was thinking about just in general is like how this book shows us how much easier it is to navigate time traveling backwards than it is forwards which i think is like intuitive but apparently not to will which we'll talk about later but it's Mm -hmm. like yeah it would be so easy like less technology etc is much easier to figure out than like you know cars and refrigerators and burglar alarms you know right and cereal yeah yeah (laughs) yeah Welcome to Community Profiles, where we talk about characters. Um, We should obviously start with Will, our 
new unasked for protagonist. <laughs> Do you mean my beloved cat bro cursed chosen one? <laughs> yes. No, but I I get it. And it's like, it is, I think, part of the reason why this book is like maybe my least favorite of the series is that it just feels the most like the second in a trilogy where it's like things are happening so we can move people on the board for what all we're doing in the Amber Spyglass. And it is really jarring to go from the Golden Compass to the Subtle Knife where you're like, who the fuck are you, Will Perry? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I... I can't remember how I felt about Will the first time that I read the book. I do remember being like, am I, did, am I reading the right book? Like, what what's going on? Yeah. But I feel like my feelings about Will are marred by where his and Lyra's relationship goes. Because, like, nothing loses me faster than unnecessary romantic, straight romantic subplots. And especially, especially, especially for my entire life, anything where we have like a meaningful friendship between a boy and a girl, and then it ends up with them in love is like, throw it away, like tear it down, down the garbage disposal. Like I fucking hate it. (laughs) So like, it makes me so so unhappy that that's where it ends up because I just feel like we never get friendships between boys and girls that don't end up with them being in love. And so I'm like really bitter about the fact that that's where the story goes. And so it makes me more resentful about Will like being here or like if he had to be here, could he be a girl, I guess. So yeah, I'm kind of meh on Will. And also like right now in this first half of the book, he's like kind of a jerk too no that's fair he grows on me and he has some moments where i really like him i have a lot of compassion for him but he's like kind of mean to lyra a lot so yeah i guess i i guess i'm of two minds where i do find a lot of his a lot of what will is doing in this book is like kind of uninteresting um but i guess i never maybe actively disliked him just because I don't know. He's just a very, (laughs) he's a like sad kid who loves cats and his like mom is mentally ill and he's like, has to do all this like dumb bullshit because the adults won't step up. And I'm like, oh, I deeply relate to that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Someone whose mom has intense mental illness stuff. And I'm like, oh, wow. Having to be an adult when you're 12. I'm like, wow. Well, Perry's just like me. Anyway, so... (laughs) Yeah, no, and I feel like that's kind of what I mean, where I'm like, I feel like I like... I like Will, but I don't like how he treats Lyra. I think it changes, obviously, the way he treats her changes. But, like, in these first seven chapters, I... It's like, we meet Will, and I'm like, he's this, like, really impressive, very tragic kid, right? And, right, like, the way that he the way that he cares about his mom and like the things that he's doing in his life, you're like really endeared to him pretty quickly. And then I feel like I kind of like bounce back and forth where like I start really liking him and then he like calls Lyra stupid. And then I'm like, "Mm, actually what good is like knowing that you have to like wash the dishes, even if no one's home, if like 
you then turn around and call like your one friend in the world stupid for not knowing something that she literally never could have known, you know? Yeah, he's very, he's very, uh, not good at friendship at this point. (laughs) Yeah, that feels too kind to me. Like he's mean. Those are different things. But I do, again, not liking the inclusion of Will as a character because of like tropes that I dislike is not the same thing as my feelings about Will as a character. Yeah. Though one of those is like beef with Philip Pullman, which is not yeah. the same thing as like how I feel about him yeah. himself, who I do like. Yeah. Even if I would rather he not be in the book, if that makes sense. Or really, even if I would rather that he be a girl, that's really what I want. Um, it's not for him to be gone. It's just for him to not be a boy. We could have had it all. Yeah. Right? I mean, the only reason that he's a boy is to make this book heter- to make the end pairing of Will and Lyra heterosexual, which I'm like. Which, like, wouldn't it have been so much more, like, bringing the dust back through, like, this subversive act of love if it was a gay couple, a queer Ugh. couple? Anyway. We could have had it all. Yeah, I know. But let's talk about Will specifically. Sorry, I didn't mean for that to get so big picture. No, no, that's fine. Um, So much uh, emotional turmoil and a heavy mantle for such a small king. (laughs) For real. (sighs) Like so much shit is happening with him in these first few chapters. I'm just like, damn, you cannot catch a break, my dude. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, how much of our conversation about, like, his home life and stuff like that do we want to put in politics versus in character development? Uh, I have stuff about his having to take care of his mentally ill mom and basically grow up really early in politics. Okay. I guess I don't have anything about him murdering someone, but I'm just like, that was the right decision at the time, so fuck it. (laughs) Yeah, totally. It also wasn't really murder. Yeah. It was manslaughter at best. Right, exactly. Um, You know, I think that the thing that... The thing that most endears me to Will of all of the things in this chapter, which there are a lot of moments, uh, almost all (laughs) cat-related moments that really endear me to Will, but it's the part where they get back into the world and they, like, hear the cat screaming because the kids are, like, attacking it. And, like, his immediate reaction is, like, find the source of the sound and do something about it, which I feel like just most people don't do. Most people are like, whoop, that sounds like not my business and, like, go about their lives. So, and, yeah, that's really the moment that I'm like, you're all right, kid, you know? Yeah. Uh, Actually, I have a question for you because I was thinking about this. Um, Is Will an earth sign or a water sign, you think? Taurus. Because, like, Lyra's got to be a fire sign. Did we talk about this in the last couple episodes? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I should have really listened to those episodes before we recorded. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I, th- I, th- I think Taurus, right? Like, he's really stubborn, but also really, like, sort of solid. I don't know. Dependable. <laughs> yeah, and not, like... He's just not anxious enough to be, like, a Virgo or a Capricorn, I don't think. But he does feel like an Earth sign, so I think that by default I'm going Taurus. All right. That feels that feels good to me. Because, you know, they're, all, they're both bringing things to the table for both their respective quests. And I'm like, he feels just a little more grounded than Lyra, in a way. But yeah, still mean to her, which is, like, dude, calm down. I know you're under yeah. a lot of stress. Yeah. 
It's funny because there are moments where he exhibits like really, honestly, very impressive, like emotional regulation where he like, we see him doing like deep breathing. We see him like recognizing that he's getting too angry and like walking away until he can like get himself under control. And then, and then just using like really hurtful words. And it just, I don't know. And I, again, I think this is another thing in my like petition for Will to be a girl because it would feel really different if this wasn't like a gendered interaction. Like they may both be 12, but they also both live in worlds that are, you know, in the patriarchy and like yeah. having a boy calling a girl stupid for like not knowing a thing is different than if it was another girl. It just is. Right. No, you're right. I know. It's so weird. I feel like it's, like, really a weakness of the series that, like, Mary is Lyra's only lady friend. (laughs) Serafina. Serafina. You're right. How dare you? She has two lady friends. But, like, most of her gang in in Jordan was just, like, other, other boys. And I'm like, you know, I don't know. Yeah, no, that's true. I don't have anything else about Will in this section, at least. No, me either. All right. Lyra? Yeah, talk about Lyra. Um, I think that we see a really nice combination of, like, the Lyra that we knew in the last book and, like, a Lyra that has been through the last book in what we're getting in the first half of this book. Yeah. Yeah, she's definitely... Some of her impulsivity is tapered down just because of, like, the truly terrible experiences she's been having for, like, what? The past four months? Five months? Yeah. Yeah. That line where it's like she was a combination of like very young and a deep, sad weariness. And you're like, that is exactly who she is, you know? Yeah. I know. It's like, you're like, I love it. I mean, I feel like Will has a similar thing going on. Or it's just like, I don't know, just a lot of like heavy, intense shit. That, like, Lyra is working through. And then, right, and then we see her in Chittagatsi, where it's like, uh, yeah, I got here four four days ago. I've just been, like, eating, like, bread and, like, right. whatever the fuck I can find. And it's like, oh, man, this is kind of a low point in your journey right now. It's just, like, being alone and hungry and, like, dirty and just being like, what the fuck? Yeah. And really, I mean, LOL, literally out of her element, but especially in will slash our world which is just like jordan isn't here what the fuck is happening everywhere around me just like hamburgers and movies are cool but also what the fuck (laughs) yeah yeah the like she wasn't lyra of jordan anymore she was a lost little girl in a strange world is like that moment like you feel her insides just crumbling you know it's it's like really crushing yeah but we do still have You know, I think that one of the things that besides her sort of, you know, launching herself at will when she hears him come in the cafe, the thing that we get that's like, but this still is, you know, the same Lyra is when she's like asking the alethiometer about will and it says he's a murderer and she's like, oh, great. Like a murderer is a worthy companion, you know, and you're like, yeah, you are still, you know, you're our kid. I love how the alethiometer, because like she would talk about in in this part of the book where 
Lyra's like, yeah, it's kind of like a person I can kind of sense moods with it. And I'm like, I feel like the mood is what is going to be the thing I can say to Lyra that will like be completely irresistible for her to be like, yep, I'm in. This yeah. kid's legit. And it's like, that was that was the thing to say. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh. And it, I think it makes sense, you no, know? It makes, because... it makes sense. It's just really funny to think about that. That is the one thing where Lyra's like, yep, I'm in it. That's great. Let's go. <laughs> I think, though, the thing is that if the alethiometer needed her to know that he did a bad murder, it would have said he did a bad murder. Yeah. You know, it's saying that he's a murderer, sort of like capital M, like this is his character. And she's like, oh, legit, you know, thieves yeah. and brigands, those are my people. And so if he fits in, then that's all I need to know. But if it was like, no, be careful of him, he, I don't know, kills puppies, then it would have said that. And she would have been like, fuck, I got to get away from him, you know? Yeah. Oh, oh Lyra. Um, I don't have anything else about Lyra. Okay. The only other thing that I had of this sort of you know, this is still our Lyra thing, is when the alethiometer says that she's supposed to help Will find his dad. And it's like, she was so startled. Obviously, Will was here to help her. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) That part is so funny. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's like, surely that was obvious. Right. She's like, I didn't come all of this way, so... To help some rando I just met. The fuck are you talking about? Yeah. It's like, honestly, a fair. <laughs> totally. Yeah. <sighs> uh, okay. Um, did you want to talk about anyone else here? Yeah. Uh, I just want, I just have a couple of points that we meet. Our other queen, Mary Malone, badass woman in STEM, um, who is just like, you know what? Why not listen to a random preteen who'd wandered into my lab that's talking about the exact same obscure branch of physics that I'm researching? Just roll with it. Whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. That's like so weird, but I'm like, <laughs> I mean, honestly, what else are you going to do? Whatever. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> oh. mm. Yeah, Mary's so great. Oh, I know. I love her. Oh, I'm so glad we get to meet her. And she's just like, yeah, sure. Have some coffee, 11 year old. Tell me all about dark matter. <laughs> uh, and my last thing is that uh, Lord Boreal, who is going by a different name in Will's world, has like yeah. really big President Snow vibes in this book where it's like his like gross, heavy perfume that's, you know, well, I don't remember what the line is. Where it's almost like it's so heavy and perfumed because it's like something rotting. And I'm like, yeah, no, this dude fucking sucks. So yeah, great description of him. Yeah. Yeah, he's real creepy. Oh my God, he's the worst. Welcome to the politics section where we talk about things that are fucked up and if needed, check the show notes for timestamps for potential content warnings. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, yeah. Where would you like to start? I guess we'll talk about Will's mom. That's my first thing. Yeah. Which is a source of a lot of Will's seriousness and maturity 
because he has had to take care of his mom and has been a little bit robbed of his childhood because of that. And he's, I think he would say that like, he wants to do that because he loves his mom. But I feel like 10 to 15 years from now, he's going to like be in therapy and be like, fuck, that like really fucked me up. Yeah, definitely. And like the sort of, I don't know. I feel like parentification is like sort of a like internet buzzword right now about, you know, in what capacity is helping your parents with like family stuff acceptable to non-acceptable. And I felt this is definitely in the kind of non-acceptable, like definitely childhood trauma range of what he is going through. And as someone who had to do a lot of my own things at a young age because of my mom's old mental health issues, I'm kind of just like, yeah, well, I get it. You're super competent, but also it sucks. <laughs> yeah, no, it sucks so much. Like having to like cook and clean and like not have any help in school and like be this responsible person when you could just be playing video games for like five hours after school, like 11 and 10 year olds that have parents that aren't like this. So, yeah. And I feel like it, to me, feels like this book does a pretty good job, too, of making a point that a lot of the problem with the situation that Will is in is, like, failures of the state and the fact that, like, he has to hide the situation that they're in so that he won't get taken away from his mom. Whereas if, like people could know and then they could like receive aid because it doesn't seem like his mom is not keeping him safe, you know, or like, it's not like he needs to be removed from that house. They just need help. They need like someone who can come cook and clean and like make it so that Will is able to have friends and stuff like that. Yeah. And so like the situation is like, made so much worse by his need to not let anyone know that this is the situation that he's in, you know? Right. And I think that's very real. Like, I feel like I had counselors in school that would ask me stuff about, like, my home life. And I'm like, I'm not going to tell you. I don't want to be taken away from my family. Right. And that's just, like, super... I think that's just, like, super real of world to be like, nope, no one's going to know anything about this. And I'm like... Yeah, again, like, structurally, you are right. Being sent to a, like, foster home, whatever, would be deeply shitty in a lot of other ways. So. Right. Yeah, it sucks. Um, Also, it sucks that, obviously, it seems like part of Will's mom's is, like, having some, like, paranoid kind of delusion stuff. But then there are also legitimately, like, creepy, weird people after that. Right. (laughs) And I'm like... You know, that other things when you're when you have mental health issues, you know, are neuro neuro spicy. If it's like you're stressed out about something or like shit like this happens, I'm just like it is also like it also just doubly sucks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe not like as unfounded as like Will assumes a lot of this sort of like paranoia is about, you know. Right. I mean, it seems like both he and his mom, you know, his mom the whole time, maybe, and Will only very recently are like, it's really hard to say when her stressors are IRL, like, 
someone yeah. really did get the bank account information to like, you know, trace it back to wherever John Perry's money is coming from or whatever, versus like she just left her wallet at home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine a like worse scenario for his mom to be in. Like what a fucking nightmare. <laughs> uh, yeah, totally. Yeah. So yeah. It sucks all around. Yeah. Um, there's a lot to say about that. <laughs> yeah, same. Uh, we get some torture in this book. We sure do. The magisterium, the sort of worst kind of religious fascism is like, and even Miss Coulter is like, we perfected this shit. We know how to torture the shit out of people. And I'm like, oh, yep. I mean, yep. You guys sure have. So, yeah. 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 Oh, my God. And she is comes in hot to this book, just like. Do they start the torture without me? Sounds like I'm going to need to torture some more people for, like, not remembering how afraid of me they should be because I wanted to torture that witch myself. And you're like, Jesus Christ, she's such a villain. (laughs) Miss Coulter is just so terrible as a person. Like, just so twisted inside. Which I'm like, part of that I think is her just being deeply ruthless and not so much big on the moral compass thing uh, and more onto like how much power can I grab and how vicious do I have to be? But I also kind of feel like part of it is the patriarchy where it's like, if she's often the only women in these rooms with like terrible magisterium dudes, then she has to be like extra vicious. She has to be more vicious than the dudes are to be like, I belong here, motherfuckers. And I'm like... I wonder in a scenario where she didn't, where she could like access the kind of political power in Lyra's world that she wants, which is within the magisterium because of, again, religious authoritarian fascism. Um, if she wouldn't be this ruthless. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, I definitely think that that's the case. Which is an excuse for her terribleness, everyone. I'm just like, yeah, it's just it's just real fucked up and you're like yes Seraphine Apocala I too want you to just put an arrow into Miss Coulter's heart totally yeah and I guess you know you mentioned the you know the church has thousands of years of perfecting torture or whatever which you would think would mean that they had thousands of years to figure out that torture like never gets you real information but I guess not I mean not even that's not something that America has learned. The U.S. government has learned. And we've only been doing it for like 300 years, 300 right. some years. Uh, and I think the fact that once again, the fact that the power of the magisterium is like essentially unchecked, like they, they just do whatever they want to, which right. is going to be terrible. But yeah, so I guess like transitioning into sort of like the magisterium and like Christofascism in this book generally we don't get like a lot of it, but we get enough of it, right? Where Ruta Scotty is like, Azrael hates the church, so I'm Team Azrael. Like, whatever the fuck he's doing, I'm on his side. I'm going. What? A, what a true ally. She's like, I don't even. This is not my religion. I'm not a part of. Like, I'm just like, but this is this is garbage. So, yeah. uh, you know, I'm just gonna 
be a strong ally and also uh bone god killer uh lord Azrael. and i'm like respect yeah totally <laughs> yeah and so i wanted to say you know so thorold is like seraphina pecola Azrael's gonna kill god like i know it sounds ridiculous but i've been watching and listening and like i'm pretty sure he can do it and I think that if you, like, figure out a way to kill the god of an oppressive religion, you have a moral obligation to do so. Uh, hell yeah, you do. Yeah. So, because, yeah, I mean, the many ways, large and small, that the, men- that the magisterium is, like, oppressing people is... It's like disgusting, like not even for like, as you get a lot of in this in this book and the Golden Compass, where it's like suppressing scholars and like scholarly thought that could go against the church. Right. But just even like everyday people, I'm sure it's like so much more worse, especially if you're not a dude. Yeah, and I love that we get, who says this, Ruta Scotty? I just put the quote and not who it was from. Like, every church in every world is the same. Control, destroy it, obliterate every good feeling. And I, like, I think that, I think that that's true. Like, I think religion is morally bad. And I feel like there is, like, something that this book makes me think about a lot because thinking something like you have a moral obligation to kill the god of an oppressive religion is like religious people think that morals come from religion. That's why they think religion is important. And to be like morally obligated to like kill the god of a religion is like, that means that that that's definitely not the source of morality. Right. And I feel like that's just like a really interesting philosophical like brain time you know is to be like what does that what does that mean and like can i don't know what i'm trying to say do you know what i'm trying to say i don't know but i think it reminds me a little bit of so we get more witch stuff in this book and it's really great to sort of like we kind of get a little bit with the witch council sort of like them thinking through the like what the fuck do we do now and sort of like we see that the witches have a strong moral compass that's like not at all based in the sort of Christo-fascism of the magisterium. And it's just like, you know, they're just hanging out in fucking nature. And I think it's a really good counter to be like, you can have a moral compass without religion by just being like, people deserve to do their own thing. And like, for me not to like shame or destroy their joy or happiness or pleasure it's just like doing mammals <laughs> doing mammal stuff i don't know hanging out together <laughs> like having sex like being in the world you know doing the things you're good at like i mean i don't know i don't know what i'm trying to say yeah. now either but no i mean like i right i think it seems like the witch's morality is like make the world better when you're able and when that's not like an active thing that's being presented to you like live well you know like don't just don't do harm and then when you're called on to make things better then do that yeah 
And the fact that we get a lot that the witches, like, don't have any shame about their bodies or themselves or anything is sort of like... Especially reading this book as an American, where so much sort of body shame is just, like, straight-up puritanical bullshit from back in the day that has just permeated American culture and, you know, so much shit about our own rising Christo-fascism... Where I'm like, man, that must be so cool to just be like, I have zero shame about my body <laughs> and my existence. And I'm like, wow, what, what, what must that feel like? Right. <laughs> uh, like, Rita Scotty, you're living your best life, truly. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I think also, also a thing that's really like cool to think about in this chapter is that we learn the name of one of the witch's gods, Yambaake, Yambeaka. And then like Lee confirms like you have different gods and they're like, yeah, we have different gods. But we see that like the god, they're like goddess of death. It's it's them. Like they understand that this is a concept. It's not like this witch is going to call for Yambeaka and like someone will show up. Serafina is there and so she steps into that role and it's not like I don't get the impression that she's like well usually the goddess herself would show up she's like right no like I in this moment I am the goddess and when like I need to call for Yambeaka someone else will be that for me right which is very lovely considering right if you could live to be a thousand years old after I even living a cool witch life you're gonna be like you know what I'm done with existence (laughs) I am done with, like, having a bajillion children and, like, most of them and, like, half of them dying. (laughs) Like, after essentially an eye blink (laughs) compared to, you know, of my life. Right. That's exhausting. Which I'm like, makes so much sense. And, like, that their goddess of death would be, like, open arms because it's, like, the sort of built-in exhaustion of being a sentient being who's lived that long and, like, lost, I'm sure, so many of your lovers and children and fellow witches or you're just like ready yeah yeah and i think that's like a completely different way to think about religion too it's like you're embracing wholeheartedly the fact that religion is like a set of stories that people use to like convey a thing and so not having any weight placed in the idea that like the figures in your religion are somehow real as opposed to allegories, I think sounds like a very freeing way to have a religion. Like, I feel like I could understand having a religion where it's like, no, we don't literally believe that this goddess exists. She's an idea and we embody the idea and we like show up for each other, but she's like a useful you know, story for us to, like, build a culture around. Right. And, like, I think we could say that humanity loves a useful story. People Across time, across cultures, people love telling stories. So people love right. contextualizing what we can perceive and what's going on with a story. Like, that just needs to be an intrinsic part of being people. And I feel like, yeah, it makes so much more sense. It makes, it does seem, like, really awesome just to be like, you know, this is a story. This is a rad story, but, like, this isn't Right. There isn't an actual goddess who's going to show up out of nowhere, you know? Right. 
Because it means that like whatever the whatever the goddess in the story is like representative of or like whatever the purpose that they're serving is, you understand that like you are responsible for fulfilling that purpose with each other in society. Yeah. Okay. Yes. That, I was like, there is something in my brain I was trying to say. Yes, because I think a lot of, obviously, as I have a six foot long list of my gripes, criticisms of uh, Christianity. But like one of them is the way that so many people are like, I need to do shit. God's going to take care of it. And I'm like, what? Right. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Like, you're not going to do anything about like human suffering now or like the, you know, our environmental crisis because like, oh, God's just going to take care of it eventually. And I'm like, no, that is take take some responsibility of where we're at. (laughs) (laughs) right please like what i think maybe this is one of the sort of aspects of christianity that's being addressed here right agreed and it just seems like it would be so much more empowering to like you know i don't know when i used to go to sunday school sometimes whenever i would visit my grandparents and i remember them being like jesus lives in your heart and like I remember it very clearly because like I had an imaginary friend who lived in my stomach and like I got I was like, what is this uninvited man doing like living inside my body? And I had to, my mom had to like perform an exorcism to get Jesus out of my heart because I was like really distraught. Um, anyway, not the point, but like I wish that people could understand that like what that should mean is that like whatever like the morals that you're supposed to get from that, you're then supposed to embody them. Not that like he's a literal man who's going to like show up and like take care of it for you someday. Oh, but Lark, people who are empowered do things for themselves uh, really have a hard time uh, with dudes in power saying what they can, what they can and cannot do with themselves or their neighbors or, uh, you know, a lot, a lot harder to control people who are actually empowered to change their lived experience versus being like, take all the suffering you can now. Uh, you'll be rewarded when you die. Literally cannot imagine a worse fate than having to keep living after I die. Why was Why does anyone want that? Jesse? I don't understand. I don't know. What a weird thing to want. Anyway, clearly these books are, like, written from, like, my exact perspective where I'm, like, the worst possible thing is to, like, have to keep being alive when you're dead. Someone please cut a hole to free all of these sad ghosts. Exactly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) All right. Oh, my God. How long did we just talk about that? 20 minutes. This is why I was like, this is going to be so long, because I have so many thoughts and feelings about, like, what this book is doing with religion, which I think is, like, impeccable. Yeah, especially, like, religion versus spirituality. Right. And, like, definitely leaning more on, like, what Dust is in this series is sort of the ideal of, like, spirituality, where it's, like, you're making yourself and the world and the people in your life and, like, the people in your community better for you having existing and like religion is just like power and control and subjugation and uh you know cutting out any good feelings and sex is bad so don't do it or you're gonna die right so yeah as opposed to it being like coming together you know with love and affection or even just 
because you want a bone is po- is totally fine and great. So yeah, <sighs> good times. Yeah, can't wait for our next four installments of this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> By the time we're done with this book, every single person who's even like the slightest bit Christian is going to have unsubscribed from our podcast. But I think that's a good thing because I don't think that there's an ethical way to be Christian in 2023. I mean, honestly, I think that if you're Christian, you really have to embrace all of the fucked up shit that has happened, is still happening and will happen in the name of Christianity. It's sort of like... I don't want to say problematic fave, but it's kind of like, if that is your jam, you like that, that is what's going on in the world. Like, yeah, no, I mean, I feel like it's like being like, uh, but I still think that like hanging an American flag is like a morally neutral thing to do. And it's like, you're, you're wrong. Like, yeah. that's a hate symbol, but like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh... So yeah, I mean, uh, and like horse Christianity being used for subjugation and control, uh, in our own many, many instances of that happening in history. Like, uh, yeah, it's like when you go into a fandom, you can't just be like, oh man, I love all the ships and like the enemies to lovers. It's like, no, but the curator is fucked up. So, yeah. Um, though I guess in this case, it's really the translations it's of the, the Bible. Fandom, it's actually. the fandom. <laughs> it is the fandom. Yeah. Yeah. The Bible has the worst fandom. Hands down. Across the board. Yeah. It's really, it's really toxic. I think it's time to just throw the whole thing out. <laughs> it's tr- time to find a new book, you guys. <laughs> time to move on to a different fandom. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, yes. What else do you have here? Is there a better metaphor for late stage capitalism than what's going on in Chittagatsi and the Spectres? <laughs> oh, say more. All right. So, you know. As we as we find out in these first couple of chapters, like Chittagatsi, whatever this world is, totally, totally fucked up. Like specters are everywhere eating so many of the adults. There's just roaming bands of children slash orphans uh, everywhere. And pre- preteens specifically, because we have this whole thing about Chittagatsi can't really exist as a like functioning society because at any given time a bunch of specters might show up and like soul suck all of the adults into just husks right and like and so we get a kind of brittle scene where the witches show up and they watch a like traveling band of people on like horses and carts and then some specters show up and like two of the adults on horses like peace out to leave all the rest of the adults to get eaten by specters and then show back up because they're just like this is how we have to do it because else there'd just be a even more rowing bands of like orphan children everywhere and, and everyone says that it's like oh man that the, the philosophers in the tower of angels they did something they were fucking around with science and atoms and created this thing that has just totally fucked us <laughs> for the past mm-hmm. like 300 years which would be not quite like late stage capitalism, but like pretty shitty for everyone involved. Right. And just like, it's almost like no surprise that the children that we see in Chittagatsi who interact with like Will and Lyra are like also half feral and suspicious and like pretty mean because it's just like they have this incredibly shitty lack of infrastructure and like 
I don't even know how you have a family in this world, to be perfectly honest. How are there even still people here is mind-boggling. Well, no. So the specters were a sometimes thing until Azrael blew a hole in the sky. So it was like it would happen every once in a while. There were like, you know, maybe a couple specters per city. But since Azrael did his thing, um, it's like thousands of specters. So I think this is a like very, very recent thing that it's like as bad as it currently is. Because I think before it was like maybe a few times a year or something like that, that someone would get spectered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really just sucks. And it's like, I think it makes sense that everything's sort of, there's a sort of like callousness, I think, to a lot of the folks that we meet in Chittagatsi. Because I think you would have to be, especially after, right, this week where Azrael has torn a hole in space time and created a specter plague, as it were. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the importance of why it is good to ask, should we do this thing? Not can we do this thing scientifically? <laughs> yep. Yep. I imagine that it probably took a really long time to associate the existence of specters with the knife, though. Yeah. But I think also enough that it's a story that's being passed along to even these small kids about why the world is like it is. Is that like, well, these these philosophers, scientists, alchemists fucked up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah, time. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that they, they did figure it out, but I feel like I would imagine you would stop. <laughs> but maybe not. That, not if you uh, had an easy way to just like steal from other worlds and not have to make anything of your own. Never mind. I don't think they would stop. You're right. It is exactly like late stage capitalism. I mean, I feel like it's like, a, oh, we can do this new science thing. It's sort of like, I don't know, the creation of like dynamite or like atomic bomb. Well, don't specters get made every time you use the knife is what we learn later. So I guess it's like an un, an unforeseen consequence less than like what TNT and atomic weaponry can do. Right. But I do think it actually does make it a very apt analogy for late stage capitalism, because at this point, they know that they create specters every time they use the knife, but they use the knife to steal from other worlds that dudes like we're like a culture of magpies. Now we don't make anything of our own. And so they're like, well, what's a few more specters if we don't actually have to do the work, which is exactly what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. I just want to talk a little bit. We don't have to really dig into it about how I think it's a bummer that Pullman decided to write uh, Charles Latram having such like child molester vibes. I don't think it does anything for the story. And I wish it wasn't there. Yeah, it's pretty creepy. Yeah, he would be creepy even if he didn't give the impression that he was gonna sexually assault Lyra, you know? Yeah, I think like so many cishet dudes, uh, it's like, maybe you just shouldn't put anything that even has a whiff of potential sexual assault or, in the case of someone of the Book of Dust, actual sexual assault, and you're, just don't do it! 
Don't don't do it. Two for yeah. two in the books of dust, actually. Yeah. So uh, yeah, let's maybe just don't approach that. There are other ways ladies can be traumatized. Just yeah. throwing it out there. Yeah, it's a bummer. Welcome to editorials where we rant about stuff. And listeners, just so you know, it's a few days later because we ran out of time on our last recording. So um, I don't know if the audio sounds different or something. That's why. Okay. What do you have first? So I can't tell if this is just because of like where Lyra is just like in her life. But maybe like I don't think people in Lyra's world really have pets considering the way that she's just like i've only ever seen working cats i've never seen anyone treat a cat the way that will is treating the like tabby cat that got attacked at the tower of angels and i'm like that seems weird because i feel like even if i had a demon i'm like why wouldn't i not want a cat also (laughs) yeah no i completely agree lyra has only I don't think she's ever gone to someone's house, right? She's only lived in Jordan. So I don't know if it's just like the college keeps cats to like take care of rats and stuff like that. But like, they're not pets. Or if it really is, no one in her world has pets, you know? Yeah. Because yeah, it's not like, oh, well, I have this part of myself that's animal shaped. Therefore, I don't need a pet. That's weird. That's like saying, well, I have like one dog so what in the world would i do with with two dogs it's like love two dogs i don't like what are you talking about right i'm like oh my idea is like having like several animals at the same time so i'm like why wouldn't i want so but like maybe it's also like maybe a class thing um just because we don't really see anyone else when we're when we're outside of lyra's perspective or her pov in the series you don't really see anyone from her world also having a like purse dog or whatever so maybe it's a oh my god i imagine seraphina with like a tiny dog and a papoose flying around i want oh that my god. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god oh <laughs> uh, i don't know why i love it but i do <laughs> it'd be so cute right Ugh. Um, okay, so I actually, my first thing is about the use of pronouns in Lyra's world, because in this segment, we get, you know, Will noticing when Lyra uses we pronouns um, in a way that you don't really get in the last book, because it's, everything's in Lyra's world, mm-hmm. and it made me start really thinking for some reason for the first time about the singular pronouns that they would use because it seems like we, us would be much more common than me, I, because you always, you know, unless you're talking to your demon or you're talking about your demon and yourself disagreeing, you're always talking about both of you. You know, so I, yeah, I just was like, huh, shouldn't they basically always be using we? I feel like as someone who tries to write crossover fanfiction where it's like, what if this world had demons? I'm like, I also don't quite understand like the sort of pronoun use here. Cause it's like, right. It would make sense that if you, that you would just use we and us all the time, considering there is two parts of a person present right 
Yeah, because it seems like, right, if Lyra's talking to Pan and she's like, I want to do this, and Pan is like, I don't think we should, that makes sense. Or if she's talking to Will and she's like, Pan said we should do this, but I wanted to do this, then that makes sense. But the rest of the time, singular we. I mean, not really singular, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I know. And especially since, like, it obviously seems to be uncommon for demons to speak to people directly and not just talk to their demons. So it right. seems like that would be common enough that, I don't know. Yeah, it just seems weird that that just, that just wouldn't be used all the time. Right, agreed. And I mean, the like tortured witch's demon who is not even with her in that moment keeps using we pronouns too, because that just makes more sense. So yeah, cool. Yeah, what do you have next? Um, okay, so I want to talk a little bit about the sort of invisibility magic we get in this half of the book. So we get it from Serafina Pecola, and we get it from Will. And the book goes out of its way to sort of like explain that it's basically the same thing. It's just a really intense don't look at me energy, mm-hmm. which I think is definitely real in a way of just being like there's definitely ways you can adjust like your body and your vibe and your posture where like people just aren't gonna like notice you which is obviously giant asterisk dependent on how normative you look in your given situation geography whatever and i like the kind of way that it's described with will where he's just like he's just trying really hard to like not be noticed and to not like to make sure that nothing he is doing appears abnormal or like out of the ordinary. Right. But for Serafina Pecola it's described as a fiercely held modesty, which is I've always I've always just been like, what a weird way to describe that. I don't know. Like an issue with the word modesty. A little bit. And like maybe part of it is because that like the witches themselves, like there is nothing quote unquote modest about it. They give zero fucks about how humans perceive them because they're just like we do what we want and maybe it's just for for me part of it i'm also just like it just seems it seems gendered in a way that is a little bit weird but also just like at least for me kind of like how am i supposed to envision this in my brain (laughs) yeah because i do feel like it feels more like when your teacher is like who's gonna volunteer to do this and everyone in the class is like do not call on me You know, Mm -hmm. it's like that is the vibe that she's holding on to. And I would never use the word modesty. I don't know what word I would use. And maybe Pullman was just like got out of fucking thesaurus and was like, what word am I looking for? And modesty was the closest, you know? Yeah. Because I don't know what that word is. I think you have to use many words to be like, don't don't call on me energy. (laughs) I know. I know. So, yeah. I feel like, honestly, this is why I really like the fact that the word vibe is sort of become in this sort of popular vernacular, because I feel like it really is just a really excellent word for just a sort of unspoken energy that like people or like not the unspoken, but just sort of like the many small things that you can do with your body and like sort of your energy that people respond to in a way that's hard to articulate. And like vibe is just such a succinct way of saying what is happening or like, what people's energies are like, all, you know, also what things are doing. Agreed. Yeah. And I feel like a good description of this would just be like, she's, I don't know, 
her vibe's different, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, like, she's really reined in her just, like, wild, I don't give a fuck, witch vibe to the point where, like, people just don't even, humans just don't even, it doesn't even register for a lot of humans. Right. Uh, and I love that it's hard, like, that it's described as this incredibly difficult thing to do because, like, yes, Serafina, it should be hard. You are, you take up exactly as much space as you want and need to in a given moment, and it's difficult for you not to do that because you should never have to. Um, though it is exactly. rad to be able to become invisible, I will say. Yeah, I mean, you know, seems useful, but yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, what do you have next? Uh, I just have one more thing, which is... I know that part of the reason why we don't have... Lyra used Neolithiometer to figure out where the fuck Will's dad is, is because plot, giant, capital P plot reasons, and of course the reveal at the end of this book. But I'm still mad about it. <laughs> <laughs> like, Will, my dude, think this through. You have a friend who has an instrument that knows everything, and that w- that wouldn't be the first thing to be like, well, where is he now? Like, look it up on your little little compass thing. Because that would have been my response. Be like, oh, sweet. Okay, well. Right, yeah. Let's look up all the questions to my problems right now, because I have a lot. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Agreed. Yeah, the only thing I can think of is that he's maybe doesn't fully understand the depths of the alethiometer. He's really just getting used to, like, magic, you know, essentially. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, bare minimum, can you ask that thing if my dad is alive? (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, um, all right. My last thing is just the amount that I love Lee's reaction to this church guy that he accidentally, accidentally on purpose, whatever, kills being like, no, I'm going to die a martyr, you know? And he like dies with this look of ecstasy on his face and Lee's like, ugh. And like, it's as he <laughs> drops him in distaste. <laughs> I'm like... God, I love that so much. That is the correct response, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) To be like, oh, really, man? Oh, okay, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, ew, get this away from me. (laughs) Yeah. Welcome to the personal section where we talk about sexy stuff. Do you have anything here? Uh, I feel like I already mentioned about Ruta Scotty just wanting to bone Azrael, and I'm like, yeah, makes sense. So I don't have anything. Here. Yeah, I have. There's some really nice vibes between Ruta and Serafina here that I feel like are worth noting, but mostly we haven't been able to do a kiss, kill, improvise on Escape from Reality in forever. And so I was like, maybe we should do one. <laughs> yeah. For those who don't listen to Escape from Reality, this is our version of Fuck, Mary Kill, but it's Kiss, Kill, Improvise. So, Jesse, your choices are Lee Scoresby, Ruta Scotti, and Serafina Pekala. Wow, this is a hard choice. Okay, all right. I think that, all right, I feel like I have to kiss Ruta Scotty, kill Serafina Pekala, and improvise with Lee Scoresby. It's a very hard choice. 
Do you want to explain your choices? Yes. Uh, okay, so Uruskati has really intense, like, bad bitch energy. Like, I feel like she would show you a good time. Mm-hmm. And I feel like she's probably great at kissing. She just sits like someone who's just, like, kissed a lot of people and is just like, I don't give a fuck. I'm like, great. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah Pekla just sort of had this short, just drew this short straw because I feel like uh, Lee Scoresby also seems like a lot of fun. <laughs> like to hang out with but like not like in a like sexual way just like i don't know you'd get into some weird adventures and, be, and it would be great mm-hmm. so on the ground adventures because i am afraid of heights unfortunately so short-lived adventures but adventures nonetheless and this is not anything about my love of seraphim and Pakala, who's great r.i.p <laughs> yeah of, of the three i can see she's sort of the most boring you know yeah. not that she's boring but in the company uh given yeah that makes sense yeah love it all right welcome to the health and science section where we talk about magic and science and research uh, that we did uh yeah uh so this this book while i think i said earlier a sort of jarring transition from the last book is also just i think still really a really good mix of both magic and science. So we're going to get a little bit of both here. In this mm-hmm. section. Like, actually. I want to start about demons. We get a few new things here. That, like, really having an outside perspective on demons is, like, very illuminating. So first thing we get, Will sort of observing that even though Pan can shift into a variety of animals, Will is still, like, there's something about his expression or his or his vibe that is still very reminiscent of Lyra. And I think mm-hmm. that's a really good and interesting point to make where it's like, you know, people love taking photos where it's like, I look like my pet kind of, uh, you know, kind of thing. And it's a huge trope, but also just like deeply interesting to be like, oh, there's something about your, maybe the like your facial expressions that your demon can make. I don't know. It's wild. Mm-hmm. It's the vibe. It's the vibe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what an excellent word uh, that I'll be using a lot for in these series of podcasts. Also, we have, because we've weirdly enough not had this before, we have an actual cat interact with Cat Pantalimon, who was at first, what the fuck are you? And is just like, oh, you're a person or whatever. So... Yeah, I think it says he's neither a true cat nor a threat. So the cat's like, proceeds to ignore him. Um, I love that. I love it so much. Yeah. Which like, is a big question, I feel like. Because it is a little bit like, yeah, how do wild or domestic animals respond? Like, if you have a bird demon, how does an actual bird respond to that, you know? Yeah, and I think something that we've talked about in various capacities over the years on our many podcasts is that animals often aren't relying on eyesight or at least not exclusively on eyesight so much in the way that humans do. So I think that what a demon looks like is not going, I mean, a bird is maybe not the best example because they are highly visual, but um, you know, a cat is using a lot of senses to assess its surroundings and if it looks like a cat, but doesn't like smell like a cat and doesn't, you know, I think it's going to be pretty easy for it to be like, well, you're not what you look like. So who cares? Move on. You know? Yeah. I feel like the sort of like how much 
physical, like in the world space a demon takes up is also very interesting to me. Like, do they have like, do they weigh? I mean, like, obviously they have a weight to them, but is it like, is it like the same amount as, I don't know. I just, I just have a whole, a whole bunch of questions. Like, right. What does demon smell like? I mean, to you or to like other animals, like what an interesting question. They probably, they probably smell like their person. Yeah. Yeah. Which is probably good if you have a uh, notoriously smelly demon, like a skunk or a fox. Or a ferret. Or a ferret. Yeah. Which, I mean, pan settles is something in that family. I don't know. I mean, I assume that the ferret musk is probably across the whole weasel franchise. (laughs) (laughs) Species. My my brain is just whatever. Yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of mammals are smelly. It turns out a lot of wild yeah. ones. So and a lot of domesticated ones. Now that we're being, I know. Honest. I like look at Rufio. I'm like, yeah, they're just all really stinky. Uh, yeah. Do you have other demon stuff? Uh, no, that's it. Actually, we do get a couple things, different instances where people with demons observe people without, and basically, like, pretty instantly and intuitively are like, "Huh, your your demons on the inside of you." Interesting. So yeah. that's cool. Yeah. I mean, the fact that I don't remember who calls the like army that the Magisterian has where they've been cut from their demon zombies. So I'm like, and I think we have this almost like lobotomy. So yeah, it must be that the vibes are off. And if it's like, well, your vibes aren't off. So it must just be on the inside. Right. Exactly. <sighs> uh, my only non-demon thing here is the etymology of chocolatel. I sent you that TikTok a while ago where someone was talking about words that came from, so I'm going to say this wrong, Nahuatl, um, which also ends in a TL. A lot of their words made it into our language, but like shifted away from having that TL ending. But that is the actual like original word for chocolate, not pronounced the way that because that TL is like a sound. Mm-hmm. But it's just, it's not like a Philip Pullman invention, which I was really excited to learn. And I should find our text conversation from when I sent you that TikTok because we were both just like geeking out about it. Yeah. Uh, speaking of language, my next point is uh, so Lyra and Will bond over the sort of learning the root words of electric power. Mm-hmm. Um, which I looked up because I'm just like, what the fuck? Uh, but apparently the first observations of electricity go back to like the ancient Greeks in like 600 BC observing static, electric- static electricity that comes from like rubbing amber on stuff or like the response huh. of amber and like feathers or like fur or wool, the sort of static charge that I guess is really easy to recreate with amber fascinating that's so cool i know i was like what (laughs) so that's i don't know people are fucking cool that's so wild (laughs) yeah yeah that's so that's really neat and then i have one more science thing okay which is uh we get lyra goes to a physicist mary malone and learns that her dark matter is the same as lyra's dust her elementary particles which is a real thing the wikipedia for that was too dense for me to try to parse through but 
Um, for those that don't know about dark matter, science still doesn't know what the fuck it is. Uh, we, no one has been able to successfully detect it or study it. <laughs> yeah, it's the glue that holds the universe together and we don't know what the fuck it is. Love it. Yeah, it could be dust for fucking all we know. And like, not that I need my science fiction to be scientifically accurate, but like... It's fun when it is. It's fun when it is, especially yeah. when we get this sort of like... The Golden Compass feels very, like, fantasy. It's very fantasy-based. And then to learn the thing that Lyra is looking into is just fucking dark matter. And you're just like, wait, what? <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, it's so good. It's just so good. There is a book that I've been meaning just... Did you send it to me? Who gave me this book? The Science of His Dark Materials. Someone gave it to me. It's a book written... Philip Pullman was like vaguely involved, but it's written by two physicists who just really like his dark materials and are like, here's things about, you know, like the many worlds theory and dark matter and all of this stuff. It's written for, you know, teenagers, but is still a little scientifically dense that I'm like, this is really cool information. I don't fucking get it at all. But it's a fun book. Like, I definitely think that anyone who's really like geeked about this stuff should look at it, even though it's like really shady about tarot a couple times that I did not appreciate. <laughs> Which is bullshit because it's like, uh, dust affects tarot readings, obviously, if that's what we're getting in this book. Exactly. So that is shady. Yeah, elementary particles are just like super, super small, like maybe smaller than atoms. And I'm like, I don't understand what is happening once yeah. I got past that part. I'm like, nope. <laughs> So if anyone is seen as a physicist and wants to explain how the fuck elementary particles work, I'm sure there's probably a YouTube video out there I could, I could be watching. But, yeah. Cool. We good? We're good. All right. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. Um, don't forget to check the show notes for all of the things, including joining our sticker club and getting your ticket to our Rocky Horror live show. And we'll be back in two weeks with the rest of uh, this book. And until then, don't trust rich dudes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>